Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Ouch! What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> Be more than happy to have you boys come on over. I'll get you guys garlic fries and anchor steamed beer. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. Oh, yeah. Yes, hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Coming at you from KNBR Studios on Battery and Broadway in downtown San Francisco. Kieran Murphy can hardly believe it beside me. Oh, hello. How are you? Not too bad. Ken, how are you? Good on here. You, well, I need to ask how you are. <laughs> pretty <laughs> you excited pretty by the sound of it. I, well, I'm, I'm glad the excitement's coming across. Ken. We arrived on Friday courtesy of Aer Lingus and their direct flight to San Francisco, a flight that gave me around 10 hours to try to strike up a conversation with Simon Hick here. Unfortunately, he had his earphones on and his brain fully engaged with Dumb and Dumber 2 mm. for the entire duration of the flight. In fairness, he, he, it actually took him kind of three goals to watch it because he, he enjoys the ad breaks watching it on TV so he, he can kind of process what he's seen. Mm. So that's just what floats Simon's boat. I mean, I watched uh, Interstellar yep. uh, when Harry met Sally. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a mixed bag. Old, but all I watched good. a couple of San Francisco cop movies. Um, oh, to get in the mood. Yeah, Bullet and uh, Dirty Harry. But I find it very difficult to actually stay awake. You know, some people say I can't sleep on planes. I oh, find yeah. it difficult to stay awake on no, them. I didn't sleep for a second of my flight, yeah. I, uh, I watched Dirty Harry and Bullet, and I can't, I think they've kind of melded in my mind yeah. together a little bit. But I actually thought, you know, Dirty Harry, which I've seen, like, I don't know, loads of times on TV, always kind of, you turn it on, yeah. you see Clint Eastwood kind of going around in that sports sports coat that he wears. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're thinking, I was watching this, and going, this movie's actually brilliant. I I love this movie. It's yeah. it makes almost no sense. It's it's just the very first scenes of it is essentially you, there's a woman in a bikini in a swimming pool at the top of a building. 
then you suddenly see a man with a sniper rifle uh, who gets her in the sights and shoots her. And you think, what's going on here? This is awful. And it makes it makes no sense. It's just these, this sequence of sort of hallucinatory images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and is, I thought this is exactly what a movie is supposed to be. Yeah, it's a pretty strange movie. Uh, Movies get too, too bound up with the stuff you were talking about, you know, plot, character development. I blame television for this. I blame... I blame television for, you know, I mean, people like David Simon, you know, and David Chase bringing, you know, these novelistic techniques into the create, you know, into into uh, using them to build these complex storylines, uh, like a Russian novel, you know, and these TV series that go on for hours and hours and hours. Whatever happened to just a series of senseless, shocking images, uh, just you know, grabbing you, drawing you into this totally crazy story uh, that, that all gets wrapped up in two hours. That's what, what movies used to be all about. Anyway, so we're here now in San Francisco <laughs> and uh, Murph, you decided you wanted to get off the beaten path away from the touristy side of things. Yeah. So you took a boat over to a little known island yeah, yeah, called yeah. Alcatraz. Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to blow it now because then, you know, the, <laughs> the, hordes the, people, arrive, the, yeah. the people that I really befriended over there yesterday, they're, they're going to blame me for this like sudden surge in tourism. But I did go to uh, Alcatraz uh, yesterday on, uh, but we had a great day yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, on really, we we did it all yesterday as a group. Uh, myself and Mark and uh, Aideen, we went to uh, Alcatraz, and then Simon and Ken rented bikes and went uh, over the Golden Gate Bridge, which was a beautiful, uh, beautiful scene. I've seen some photographs. Uh, looked like they had a great time. You went to your aunties, which is. You know, a very Irish touristy thing to do. I've got an aunt, yeah, just uh, in Alamo there a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, like, you couldn't ask for any more. I mean, we, we, we brought it pretty heavy yesterday. Uh, I think we had a great time. How was your cycle over the Golden Gate Bridge again? Uh, it was amazing. It was really amazing. Uh, myself and Simon don't really know what an easy option is. Yeah. Like, if you, if you put the easy option in front of us, we, we would be, like, staring at it with looks of, of blank and comprehension saying, you know, what is that? I, I don't even. Why, know. So don't you're saying it. if I do that, I'm not pushed to the very limits of my endurance. Why would I do that? So we we uh, we obviously cycled up to to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, taking the scenic route uh, through the park and so on. Obviously, a lot of climbing involved. I mean, <laughs> some punishing climbs on. We were we were recycling a pair of old lady bikes, which appeared to be made out of solid cast iron. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it was the idea ideal sort of mountain hopping. You know, equipment. I felt that. I felt. I was feeling every ounce of my. There's something wrong here. It must weight. be the bike. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's absolutely right. Ken. But uh, over the over the bridge, pretty windy on the bridge. Own a, a monumental feat of human ingenuity. Uh, long way down. I was impressed by the bridge. But then we we cycled up to uh, Hawk Hill, Hawk Hill, the uh, the promontory overlooking the uh, bridge, uh, which was another brutal, uh, punishing climb. Um, we got, we got there. Looked down on the on the thing. It was great. And then we decided: will we will we just go back the way we came, or will we continue on into the essentially? Will we plunge into the unknown? So I don't, I don't need to tell you, Owen, what we did. <laughs> and I swear, on that the the sort of downhill from there, it, it felt on the original turn, sort of around away from Hoxton, like jumping out of a plane. I I I, I I'm not kidding you. I was terrified about how steep this suddenly appeared, how big the sky was, how fast the wind is rushing into my face. And then as it went on, how weak my brakes actually were relative to what the, the work that they needed to do. So, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. We, uh, it, the hawks came and swooped and soared overhead. So it felt as though we were in an ad for some kind of expensive scotch whiskey. 
uh, as the, <laughs> these uh, uh, birds of prey, you know, uh, just out there on the uh, on the western shore. We only truly felt like locals. I think when we got down, got to sit down with US Murph in a bar at AT and T Park, the Willie May statue behind us, Murph, while we're watching the Giants batter the Cincinnati Reds. It the was, 11 runs in an away game drinking his beloved Anchor Steam beer we heard him mention it there in the bed on the way yeah. in I, mean, I think if people had in mind what we could possibly get up to with Brian Murphy in San Francisco I mean you think you've just named every single one of those things it was so, an excitement overload yeah it was and I mean I think there's, uh, you know you can overthink these things you know where do you want to meet well the Willie Bay statue outside AT&T Park why, why not why not so no we had uh, and the Giants are rolling uh, the Golden State Warriors can't stop winning. I don't want, yeah, I don't think we should take too much credit for the incredible upsurge Listen, in it's Bay a Area sport at the moment, but there's a lot a going on. Effort. You'll hear some of it with Brian in a little while. I'm popping into KMBR Studios. be a Meath man, Seamus McDonough, with a hell of a story. This is a guy yeah. who fought Evander Holyfield in Holyfield's prime. Crazy, yeah. That, um, and a story that uh, I actually only became aware of in the last uh, couple of weeks. But yeah, you're, Essentially, you're looking for interesting... Irish guys in San Francisco, yeah, with a possibly interesting backstory uh, or uh, out of the, out of this world sporting achievement. So, uh, Mike Tyson uh, and Evander Holyfield were due to meet in uh, summer of 1990, and out of nowhere, Mike Tyson gets floored by Buster Douglas in Japan. Uh, Holyfield's plans are thrown up in a heap. So, uh, his promoters go looking for a guy uh, to uh, a guy for him to fight, and they happen upon an English literature student from Ireland, really good-looking chap, uh, rated fighter. And the promoters say, you know what, I think we could probably do something with this. Uh, and so it was that uh, Seamus McDonough, uh, born in Birmingham but uh, grew up in Enfield in County Meads, uh, stepped into the ring in 1990 with uh, Evander Holyfield, one of the best heavyweights of the last 25 years. He, Absolutely amazing. Story. He had a lot of demons before and after that fight as well, a battle with alcohol and uh, issues surrounding that. So we'll talk about all that later on. It's a really interesting character. There were uh, emotional scenes at AT&T Park yesterday. We were inside. I mentioned being in the bar outside, but initially we were inside the home stadium of the San Francisco Giants, having finally, after all these years, shaken the hand of Brian Murphy. Well, actually, it was a bit more of a handshake from Kieran here, which explains my opening question to US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. I've got to apologise for Murph's over-exuberance outside, first of all. That was, Sorry, was unnecessary. nothing on. Uh, I sort of expected it. In, in 10 years of talking to you guys on the phone, I, I always felt Kieran was the awkward one <laughs> and, uh, and was going to barrel in no matter what. And uh, But I am just blown away. It's amazing. That you boys are... First, we're just 10 years on a transatlantic phone line and now yeah. I'm two inches from <laughs> Owen's face. Uncomfortably close here. Unbelievable. At least good. Ken is a comfortable distance. Yeah, Murph, welcome, boys. Oh, thank Can you I so much. And not a bad place to meet, huh? That's yeah, amazing. Right. Yeah. We kind of thought this was the, the right place, the, the, you know, the spiritual home of your, your first sporting <laughs> love, so why not? Well, I love it because you guys, for years, have tolerated, and I mean just barely tolerated, any baseball talk, right? <laughs> so it's like you guys always want to talk NFL and basketball, but I'm forcing you to meet me here at the home of the three-time World Series champs, San Francisco Giants. But you guys are here. It's awesome. And uh, I was thinking, actually, 
on the way over, I was thinking the most significant moments in the city's history, right? The 1849 gold rush, the 1906 earthquake and fire, the Giants move here in 1958. I think I'm ranking you guys number four. <laughs> number four on that list. Congrats. Welcome to the top well, five. Give us a little tour, a little virtual tour. Well, it's not virtual, but we're signing right this here. This is reality, baby. Yeah, I, I, You're in the States. Is, is, that right? an, is that an organic garden I see within <laughs> the confines of this stadium? What's going Welcome on? Welcome to Fufu San Francisco, yeah. 21st century new wave San Francisco, new age where we do everything organic. Uh, yeah. We have an organic garden, guys. Do you have organic gardens at Lansdowne Road and uh, Croke Park? I think it's being built. The, the organic garden that smells of, of, of piss and spilled Guinness, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, right. So, yeah, this is kind of what we do here in San Francisco. We build these lovely little jewels, and they're on unbelievably expensive real estate, and we overprice the tickets. Yeah. And then just to make everybody feel like they're very uh, evolved, we throw organic gardens out there, too. <laughs> so that's kind of very San Francisco. The city's going through an incredible change right now with Twitter moving their headquarters into town and all sorts of tech moving from the Silicon Valley into San Francisco. And it's almost like the city, this kind of thing has to reflect it. So if we're going to go big money, tech hipsters, we're going to give them an organic garden. We're going to give you guys a view of the Bay Bridge, the San Francisco. This is the poor little sister to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the red-headed stepchild. <laughs> Everybody wants their picture on the Golden Gate Bridge. Nobody wants their picture on the Bay Bridge. But this park kind of revived the Bay Bridge in a way. I've made it kind of feel important. You can, the bridge is walking a little taller now. It feels a little more important. This Coke bottle, of course, uh, nice good sponsorship for Coca-Cola, right, to get this thing. But they built a little slide in there for kids to make it all yeah. kid-friendly again, all this whole user-friendly thing. Our great high-def scoreboard, but most important guys, and they're not up there now because the Giants are on the road, but that's where the World Series flags fly. And as you know, in the time we've been doing this, uh, they've won 2010, 2012, 2014. I still remember talking to you guys in 2010 from Texas. Yeah. Do you remember that one? I had the no voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you guys thought I was half half off my rocker well, or fully off my rocker. Fully, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, we were doing the, uh, the, the time difference math in our head. It was like, he's either up very early or... Or he's gotten up very early or stayed out very late. What it was a little of both. Yeah. It was a little of both. We had done the game. That was unbelievable. You had to imagine. I tried. To, I think I didn't I throw the Claire hurling analogy out yeah. on that one because it really was one of those ones where think of the county or the GAA or the English football club you support that had waited the longest time for something to happen. Now, the Chicago Cubs are the ultimate in, in, in American sports. They haven't won a World Series since 1908. If that ever happened, they really might burn the city down. But for us, it was our first ever one in San Francisco, so it meant a huge deal to those of us who are a little older uh, and remember the entire futility. So now we're getting spoiled. They've won three, and they are being joined right now by the Golden State Warriors right across the bay. You can almost see Oracle Arena from here, uh, who are shortly going to win an NBA championship, I think. <laughs> and then about... 45 miles to the south of here in a soulless corporate graveyard are the once beloved 49ers who have left San Francisco. They left this city. They could have built a stadium here in the city. They screwed it up. Why are they doing the opposite of everyone else? I mean, everyone's moving from San Francisco. Ken, from your lips to God's ears, man. No, I mean, they would tell you that San Francisco made it difficult on them to build with restrictions and political regulations. And they, they have an argument to a point. But when you look at this, you say, well, yeah, but the Giants overcame the hurdles. And the Warriors, they haven't done it yet, but they likely are going to overcome the hurdles. So why couldn't you? The deal was they got a sweetheart deal down in Santa Clara. Cheap land, pretty uh, doable, right next to their practice facility they built there about 20 years ago. And they didn't want to deal with the headaches of San Francisco politics, which is a problem. So they just said, we're going to go the easy way out. And as a result... Uh, of course, they could have helped everything by like winning a Super Bowl. Then everybody would love the stadium. Yeah. But instead, they had the bad year with Harbaugh. They parted ways with him. They hired this unknown guy now. And so now the Niners are 
waffling mightily, even though they are, you guys know the NFL is king, and we, if, if they won, we'd go down there in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the stadium before, Brian. And, uh, you've been here since 2000, moving from Candlestick? 19, yeah. 2000. I was here in 2004 in, full, in the period of full Barry Bonds oh. mania. I think he hit home run number 666 pretty much directly <laughs> over where we're standing, a little bit to the right, over into the bay there. And I remember 666 because a lot of people had these Dev, devil insignia <laughs> covered posters and all the rest of it and there were about 50 people out there in kayaks and canoes yeah. scrambling around to yeah. get the ball as that's a true story have you guys gotten the check of the, the, the cove they call that McCovey Cove and right. the kayaks out there so yeah do people as you guys know San Francisco is not a, it's not Palm Springs or Las Vegas this is a cool yeah. breezy city so if you're on a kayak at night, it's a little it's a little chilly out there, right? <laughs> but for those people, it was the, it was a, the place to be. You get on your kayak and you wait. And the crazy thing was that bonds would deliver. Yeah. It is it is nobody has since now. You could say because performance enhancing drugs have been washed out of baseball. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier to hit it over the over the fence and into the water when you're up. when you're pumped up like a, a Bulgarian weightlifter from the '76 <laughs> Olympics, right? But uh, he still was the most amazing baseball player I've ever seen, steroids or no. And he did that over and over and over again. Uh, all the way to the point. But he remains a, guy, a, a, a character in limbo, in purgatory in American sports. He's just gotten his name cleared from his felony. He, he had a felony conviction for obstruction of justice. Gets very legalese. But he remains this, this sort of tortured yeah. figure. Didn't you know? I read that uh, A-Rod went to hang out with Barry Bonds? This yes. is part of his rehabilitation. He <laughs> also drug disgraced A-Rod. And he now A-Rod's hitting all these home runs. He just passed Willie Mays, whose yeah. statue, of course, we mm. saw earlier for our awkward encounter. <laughs> yes, yeah. right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, A-Rod's out back doing his thing, and he, part of his rehab was to meet Bonds for hitting tips, which yeah. confounded a lot of people. But, again, returning to the essence of it, Bonds is, was the greatest hitter any of us has ever seen. So him hitting 666 is kind of funny. Yeah, he was uh, satanic to a lot of people. <laughs> now, you're bringing us to the Dodgers, an afternoon game against the Dodgers mm -hmm. on Thursday, which mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to, mm -hmm. which everyone here, Mark, Simon, Murph, everybody's looking forward to, except for the man standing to my right. Ken! Ken is not a baseball fan and refuses to be... I don't even know if he's going to come to the game. Right? What the heck? Convince this man. I Where's say I wasn't looking forward to going to the game, but it is something that's always seemed a bit sedentary to me. I mean, not just the, the spectators, but also even the players. I mean, some of them look a little settled. Well, uh, you know, beauty is, in, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, some would say soccer. You know, America, Americans going about soccer or football, which you guys would call. And I think a nil-nil draw might draw the wrath of some American sports fans as even though you're moving, you're not creating any anything of lasting value or memory so that would be our counter would be like oh yeah you're the guys who have your nil nil soccer matches and you tell us this is a boring okay. game so well you gotta you know what our comeback is always we always say it's boring to boring people so, okay. so there you go zing 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 right that again? <laughs> well I, I was just watching this chris rock video there the other day. He, he was suggesting that uh, the, the the demographic is aging and yes. like we say Bleaching yes, it is. Like it that. is. I mean, do you, uh, it's so sad. And do you guys saw that? It's incredible. Yeah, but saw, do you remember what Chris Rock said at the start of that? That he's a baseball fan. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a huge they, baseball fan. And he's wondering where his his African American brothers and sisters went. And it is a really good argument as to what happened societally in the last twenty years, because there was for a hundred for many years baseball wasn't too slow for the African American crowd. It was the place where all, they all went. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, all the greatest players in baseball history. Many of them were African-American, and it was the golden age. Roberto Clemente, well, Roberto Clemente was a Puerto Rican, but I could go on and on and on. Barry Bonds, for example. Um, but Michael Jordan in the 90s was such a phenomenon. It changed things, and the NFL's climbed to the top. We're just in an era right now, and it could change. We've talked about this many times on the show mm -hmm. about how concussions can, could change the NFL's place in America or 
20 years from now, it may not be as popular. But in this particular stretch of time, baseball is is losing on the TV ratings war. But this park is filled every night. 40,000 people every night, 3.3 million fans. Will it be, this place will be full for the afternoon game? Yeah, I mean, you'll how see, people you'll get, see. Get the <laughs> I'm serious, how, how does that happen? You I'm mean like, like the, the, the Chicago role. Cubs manager. That baseball manager yeah. told us that he was criticizing. 85% of the, the world yeah. is yeah. working. How the other 50% is that? Ken's, <laughs> Ken's getting his Lee Ilya on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. These guys are jobless bums. Well, in the tech hipster world of San Francisco, you know, there's no such thing as the traditional work hour anymore, right? I mean, all these guys are walking around in their skinny jeans and their hooded sweatshirts and they have their and they're doing all their work on their phone while they're sitting here having their garlic fries and their anchor steam yeah. uh, which I saw you guys already cracked which was very <laughs> good so yeah that's the deal now they used to call them guys they used to have the weekday games and call them the businessman special yeah but they would draw pff, three four five thousand you know because people would traditionally work yeah. then it's changed now that people can kind of work their schedules and move around guys like me I'm done working at 10 in the morning or whatever you know so from, from the first time we started speaking to you, Brian, people have noted that you have an affinity with Ireland. Uh, you've got a, a certain knowledge of a certain period in Irish sports, certainly around the <laughs> 1990s. When you actually, and we're uh, talking to here in an Irish Times podcast, you wrote a piece for the Irish Times. I did. In I a did. Spell, living did you guys ever, you guys found it, right? Didn't one of your yeah, listeners I find it? it? I emailed it to you. That was a no, huge moment. Was that was a huge moment in my life. Yeah. I submitted a, a bunch of stuff to them from the Barcelona Olympics, and they used none of it to my <laughs> great regret. I had some good stuff, too. I did an interview with Jack Nicholson, the actor, about his affinity for Ireland. You're I thought true. it was a great what? piece. That wasn't picked up. I thought it was a great piece. Listen, I don't know if we can criticize the Irish Times here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Their leadership in 1992. That Just sounds like a strange Who was my editor? Oh, gosh. I, uh, he had a, his first name was a sort of... Um, Androgynous. It was like Val or something like. Oh. Mal. 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 Was it Mal? Mal Logan. I would, I, yes, we'd like to Mal distance Logan. ourselves. He's yes. still there. Yeah. Is he Current still there? Sports yeah. Editor. Mal. Yeah. He's a hell of a guy, by the way. <laughs> Where was the place? <laughs> so I went to the Barcelona Olympics. So one of my dear friends, I went to UCLA. Doesn't matter. We're all sacked now, Brian. This, <laughs> this isn't going out any further. You can say what you like, now, Brian. <laughs> Hey, Mal, I'll still write for you, buddy. Yeah. Um, so I went to the uh, Barcelona Olympics just on a, on a lark. I had no money. Uh, a buddy of mine worked for NBC Sports, which had the U.S. broadcast rights. So I stayed in his broadcast village, and I stumbled into tickets to one way or another. I wound up at the gold medal volleyball match between um, Brazil and Cuba, women. Yeah. Uh, it was great. And, and there I was in the VIP section. Who was sitting there by himself? Well, he wasn't by himself. He had an unbelievably beautiful date with him. <laughs> Who may or, It might have been that. Was it Lara Flynn Boyle or... Cheryl and Finn? Well, Remember he was dating... Both, well, they were both in twin... Yeah, he was dating... Go back and Google Jack Nicholson's girlfriends. It was either Cheryl and Finn or Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah. And she was bored out of her mind. She was asleep on the bench. <laughs> or drunk, I don't know. But anyway, I saw Jack and I said... I'm gone. I said I was desperate to get in the Irish Times. I had gotten in once and I wanted to keep it going, man. Yeah. I thought, who knows, I might have stayed there. Yeah. I could have been a, a second captain. Yeah. Who knows, you know? Well, you are, but... <laughs> that's true, that's true. I could have formed first captains and then you guys could have been the sequel. But, um, so I went up to him kind of bravely I just I said what do I got to lose nothing right so I told him I said I, was Bri- I identified myself as Brian Murphy from the Irish Times I did <laughs> and he kind of looked he said I'm not doing any interviews here pal that's what he said and he had his shades on he was looking straight ahead yeah. and I, undaunted I said I, I don't think you heard me I'm not even though I'm American I'm not working for an American outlet and this is pre-TMZ yeah, pre yeah, yeah. he didn't so there was no like me filming him with a cell phone or anything yeah. I said this is not for an American outlet this is for the Irish Times maybe that changes your attitude and he actually no joke like he stopped and turned to me. And he said, the Irish Times? I said, yeah. And he said, I was just in Ireland. I said, really? He said, yes. I was, he, and he said, uh, he said, I was out in Galway. He was out in Galway. I love Galway. Yeah, all right. And he said, good. Morin's on the weir. Yeah. That's what he said to me. Yeah. That's what he said to me. And I said, I started swimming. He goes, my mother was a lynch from Galway. 
I go to Ireland all the time. And he said, uh, you can't beat Morins on the Weir for a pint of Guinness <laughs> and some oysters, right? Is that what they have the yeah, oysters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like a, a oyster all this down. Yeah, Bridge And he goes, he goes, I was in Dublin for the one for the ten thousand year anniversary <laughs> just two years ago. And I think he meant the thousand year anniversary. Yeah, I would so, yeah. The nine eighty eight to nineteen eighty eight thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. was nineties, but I let him go. I wasn't gonna interrupt him. He said, I love the people, I love the food, I love the conversation, I love the crack. And uh, he said, You give my best to the people of Ireland. And so I figured there'd be a good little note for the Irish Times, right? So I wrote it up and sent it in. Mal never used it. Oh my God. <laughs> what was the piece that did get in there? It must have been dynamite. Can you remember? <laughs> it was about the 1992 U.S. basketball dream team with Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and that crew that had come to restore basketball glory because we'd been ashamed. We had that great tradition of never losing a gold medal except for the 72 Olympics when the Russians stole it from us. They would tell you that they won it properly. We say they stole it from us. And that was our only loss in basketball history until 1988 when we stumbled into an embarrassment and felt, won a bronze and it was a national disaster. So like true Americans, we responded by just absolutely loading up our bazooka and invading. You know what I mean? Like, it, to, to, it was like George W. Bush was in charge of the basketball team. You know what I mean? So we got Mike. We went pro. We got Magic and Michael and, and uh, Charles Barkley and everybody. And we went over to Barcelona to lay waste to the field and leave no doubt. And so Mal asked me, he said, explain why you guys are doing this and what's the history behind this to the Irish fans. So that's what I wrote. Because you'd been living in Dublin at that time. I this had. Was, uh, I worked at O'Donoghue's Pub right there on Baggett Street, Marion Row, right? Uh, right yeah, across from uh, the, uh, where the uh, Dubliners got their start, right? Yeah, about 200 yards from our office. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, oh, boy, you want to, yeah. Poof, boy. And I lived in Fibsborough. We talked about that. I'm a North Sider. I'm not like you posh South Siders. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I would uh, hang out at, of course, at uh, Doyle's Corner. Yeah. And the hut, which yeah. we've talked about. Is that still there, the hut? The hut is still very much there. Is Doyle's Corner still thriving? Yeah. Yeah? yeah, yeah. Okay. Those were the days, boys. And Pearl River Takeaway, the Chinese food right across there. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that's still there. Uh, across the road from where? From the hut in Fibsborough? Uh, yeah, it was on. It was where North Circular Road meets the Fibsborough Road, and it was right kind of just down the couple blocks. And... See, if, if, you're, if you'd move me into Drunkhandra there, I'd know every last detail of the fast. Is that where you are? In Drunk no, I used to be in Drunkhandra. I was yeah. in college. Before in you made it. Yeah. Before well, you hit it big. I would hesitate to say that, Brian, Before you started uh, flying to Ireland uh, from San, Fran San Francisco to Dublin nonstop on Aer Lingus, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Brian, we picked a pretty good time to be here because you mentioned the Warriors over uh, not too far away from here. You can almost here. see it from here, boys. Uh, yeah. I, I yeah. wandered into a sports bar last night. They were in, near the end of the third <laughs> quarter. They were struggling a little bit. It was quite a close game. Uh, their opponents, the Memphis Grizzlies, had come back. And suddenly, Steph Curry, you've been talking yeah, to us about. I'm trying to tell you. Hits one, a three-pointer from somewhere deep inside his own half. I think he hit it from from Fisbury. From Fisbury. Right? Yeah. And uh, it was pretty from much game over at that stage. Incredible. They're through to the conference finals. It was finals. awesome. It's not getting weirdly frequent, though, because I was watching a game on the plane the other day, like uh, Cleveland against Chicago, mm -hmm. and yeah. someone did the same yeah. thing. Yeah, well... So it's not, not, it's well, not once in every standard fair. Events, Kind yeah. of a combination. It, it, I wouldn't call it weirdly frequent, but certainly it's not as unusual as you'd think, because these guys are actually practicing those shots now. And part of Steph Curry's legacy or lore of Steph Curry as he's blown up on the scene. It was named NBA MVP. Mm. I believe I had to spar with you guys a couple weeks ago on the air about that. Mm -hmm. You were trying to throw James oh, we Harden. Either the Splash Brothers or Westbrook. Splash Brothers, we have to get you some t-shirts while you're here. But um, part of Steph Curry's lore is, is that he is this insane shooter, and he shoots constantly from everywhere. And people with their cell phones now are filming his pregame routines a lot. And his pregame routine involves long shots and going into the tunnel on the way to the locker room and he always does a shot. And I mean, it's, I don't know, from here to home plate is a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. And he shoots them and he, until he makes them. So he, he, when he shot that, 
I had enough time when it was in the year to think, you know, he, he practices these. And Steve Kerr, the coach, who's been brilliant, and he used to be Michael Jordan's teammate on the Bulls. He was a sharpshooter himself. He's been brilliant for Curry. He said, too, when the ball was in the air, he said, you know, I think he's going to make this. Really? And uh, because of his practices, it wasn't that much of a fluke. They said, if you give him 10 of those, he'll make three. Yeah. Three yeah. of those wow. yeah. 10, yeah. that's insane. No, he's, he's, the, he's, I don't want to call him the greatest shooter I've ever seen just yet, but he's on his way to being the greatest he's shooter in the history of the game. That he's done. That he's done. Yeah. And part of that is they design it for him and they shoot, the, and that's, you know, Jordan and LeBron, that's not their game. Kobe would, would also drive to the basket more. Uh, he's sort of a specialist in a way. I mean, he does take it to the basket, and he does shoot two-point jumpers, but not that much. He's just almost the first guy exclusively to be a, a, like a three-point assassin primarily and be the main guy in the game. We've had Ray Allen be that guy or Robert Horry with the Lakers back in those. You always have these three-point specialists, Steve Kerr with the Bulls, but he's the first guy to like be a three-point assassin and, and be the main guy, mm. you know, to be the guy who's going to kill you that way over and over and over again. It was incredible to watch that. Yeah. You could see that, that obviously the Grizzlies knew that he's their main guy. He's, he knew that he's the three-point killer, and they couldn't do anything no. about it. Well, the Warriors, that's part of the brilliance of Steve Kerr is always getting... So what happened was the Warriors were down two games to one in the series, and it looked like they were choking. It looked like the moment was betting too big for them. Curry had been named MVP, and he gave an hour-long speech. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's, like, still going on right now. He gave way too long of a speech because he wanted to thank everybody he'd ever met. Oh, yeah, He's crazy. such a nice <laughs> guy. It's so long. Can you imagine speaking for an hour? Like you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? so, uh, so he's thanking, and, and it, clear, it affected him because they had a game the next day, and he had the worst game he's had in, in weeks and months, and everybody said, what? And we started to think, you know what? I think he's a little messed up from all this. And then his next game was bad, too. In fact, he went four out of 21 from three-point land in games two and three, which is severely below his average. And we started to speculate, is, is this all too much for him now? Like, he's kind of out of his skin, out of his rhythm. And he, they acknowledged, after they ripped off the next three, that they had. And it took Steve Kerr. He pulled him aside and sat him down and told him, you, I want you to not shoot. When we get out there on the court, I want you to just relax. I want you to, quote, unquote, let the game come to you. And that's a phrase, but can you do that? So they, game four, they're down two games to one. In the first eight minutes, Steph didn't shoot. He kept distributing the ball, drawing those double teams, passing. And a guy named Harrison Barnes, who's really come on, started making shots. Draymond Green, who's my favorite warrior, he started hitting some shots. And then Memphis started to pay attention to those guys, and then here comes Steph. Right. And it was, it was a brilliant coaching move to tell him to relax and get him out of it a little bit and then let him ease back in. And ever since then, it's been Katie bar the door. He's been unbelievable. The excitement is amazing. The front page of the Chronicle had a <laughs> – the first paragraph was – you know, when you watch the Warriors play like this, it's not really sport. It's more like the fine music that comes from my heart, which is total bullshit, but it shows how exciting everything it's is. It's true. That was Scott Ossie, who's a great writer. But he had a great line that said, they always tell you Steph Curry's dangerous from outside the three-point line, but they didn't mention that he's dangerous from outside the other three-point line, too, because he shot that 62-footer from inside of Memphis's three-point yeah. line. So that was the, And what you said earlier, too, was at a critical point in the game. It wasn't just a, a one-off, goofy shot when they were up by 20. It was when Memphis had closed to four. Mm. And, and they came down looking to close it to two right before the end of the quarter. Iguodala might have fouled the shooter for Memphis, but they called no call, and the ball bounced on the court, and everybody stopped playing except for Steph, who grabbed it and shot it. My wife was watching. She said, tell Declan, my little seven-year-old, she said, tell him, never stop playing. Never <laughs> stop playing. You got you to shoot. So. Well, listen, I tell you, Brian, you, you mentioned Mike got his Splash Brothers t-shirt. I think it's only right at this stage to 
award you with a reward you for this amazing interview oh, with a second yeah. captain's hoodie, which is going to be put yeah. on by Mark. Like one of those uh, texture, texture hippies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Get it on you there. I got it. You might, we might, we might even throw in a mug as well. Simon's gonna I got my. Yeah. More importantly. Oh yeah, my. Co oh, that's it for my coffee. <laughs> I'm all over it. Well, boys, well, I, I'll tell you what, um, this may not be the, uh, the end of the gift-giving portion of the day. I think maybe we'll have to uh, figure that out. To uh, I'll return the favor to you guys shortly. But this will be worn proudly, and this will be sipped from proudly. Well, Brian, thank you, thank you for now, but uh, we're going to be hanging out pretty much 24-7. <laughs> okay, so thanks you know, for the time I, You here. know, i got a family and responsibilities, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, not Listen, this Brian. Brian Murphy, brilliant. Thank yeah, you. You guys. They came. Amazing. Uh, I just hope it came across how much we enjoyed ourselves there. That was a hell of a lot of fun and an unbelievable stadium, by the yeah. way. You're impressed with it, Ken? Yeah, uh, very nice. Uh, right by the lovely setting, right there by the uh, by the water. Um, I'd like to see it full. Well, you will. As we, all the, as I want to see what I really want to see is the concessions. I want to see the all the um, the food uh, food Ending situation. Vendors, yeah. What they um, what they provide for a hungry American baseball crowd. Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, I think you'll. See a lot that you'll like there, Ken. I think it's going to be just fine. Yeah. Did you enjoy Jack Nicholson's Blarney talking there? I'd never heard that story from Brian before. Jack it's Nicholson. It's kind of an eternal story, though, isn't it? <laughs> At the same time, it's a story that that uh, exists outside of time and space. Uh, the American actor reminiscing about uh, talking a little bit of Blar Blarney about Ireland. Um, maybe that's why the Irish Times didn't actually publish it. <laughs> it was felt as though people had already heard this story before. Yeah, pretty cool if you're if you if you're hearing Jack Nicholson say that to you, you know, face to face. First, first print, but yeah. down on print maybe it looks a little more bullshitty. If you want to hear some Blarney Irish talk, well join us on Wednesday night. We've got details confirmed of our live show at Johnny Foley's Irish House on O'Farrell Street. Yes. <laughs> it's the cellar of Johnny Foley's Irish House on O'Farrell Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, doors at five 30 p.m. We are going to be recording at 6. US Murph will be there. US Murph has headed off to his nephew's graduation. I'm not sure why I'm giving you his life story, but he'll be back well in time for well in time for anything else you want to know about US Murph is up to. He will be back to back to us for that. Richie Sadler is going to be over. Yeah. It's going to be absolutely yep. amazing. So we'll have a we'll have a whale of a time. So tickets are limited. Secondcaptains at irishtimes.com is the email address. So if you are in the area anywhere near us, we'd absolutely love to see you. Send, pop us an email there, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com, and we'll put some details on directions to the place. If you don't know it, uh, it's in and around Union Square. There are any more details you want, secondcaptains.com on the website. Uh, in the meantime, we've been keeping an eye on all the sport at home without the need to trawl through the Irish bars at nine in the morning. A nice Airbnb house has done the job, Ken. You've been watching Stephen Jarrod's last game. We'll be talking, Jared, in today's Irish Time Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm going down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? Yes, uh, we'd be talking about that. I mean, he, he obviously had his last game at Anfield, a very emotional occasion it was too, and a, a hugely uh, triumphant occasion for Crystal Palace, <laughs> who ran amok and uh, destroyed Liverpool. Uh, we're going to talk also, well, we'll, we'll go over some of the Premier League games, but the other big thing we're going to be talking about is Barcelona, uh, who sealed the Spanish title by beating Atletico Madrid 1-0. Uh, so we'll talk to Sid about them.
Uh, Vander Holyfield may not have been the biggest heavyweight in the world by any means, but he's certainly one of the toughest. This is a man who twice had his ear bitten by Mike Tyson, let's not forget, and wanted to keep on fighting rather than see Tyson disqualified. <laughs> he wanted to keep putting some hurt on there. Our studio guest today in San Francisco is a Meath man. He lives in the city, has done for a long time, who once had the, I'm going to call it a dubious honour, of sharing a ring with Holyfield in his prime. He's had to face down a few demons since then. Delighted to welcome Seamus McDonough into studio. Seamus, how are you? Grand Owen, how are you? Uh, pretty good. I think you're the first guest we've ever had who's come straight from the ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. I can <laughs> can't even these. say the word. <laughs> I think it's ophthalmologist. Yeah, well, try spelling it. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's great to chat to you in studio. You're a local. Well, you're not a local, as people will tell by your accent, but you've been living in the Bay Area a long time? Lived here for 20 years. Yeah, right. I came to Berkeley. I had, I had a cousin in New York who... Uh, I met by accident, and and uh, I was drinking way too much in New York, and right. uh, and then the actually the ex girlfriend says you're gonna die in New York, and uh, we can be we can be honest here, can we? Oh, of course, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what said, we want. She said you're gonna die in New York. Uh, my uh, ex girlfriend, who a great friend, uh, Renee Rossi, and uh, she said you're gonna die here, and I just I just the, the career was over. There wasn't anything good about my life in New York back uh, 20 years ago, so I moved out here. You're where are you from originally? Originally, um, well, I was born in, in Birmingham, England. Right. Parents went over there, raised in Ireland, uh, all Irish blood. And uh, Where about, uh, whereabouts? Enfield. In Enfield. Enfield okay. County Meath, yeah. Father started a boxing club in Enfield. He was a professional boxer in England himself, in, in London. Started a boxing club in Enfield, and uh, within a couple of years, we were the best club in Leinster. I read yeah. an article, it was in a, a very, really interesting interview you did about 10, 12 years ago now, 2003, in SF Weekly with a guy called Tommy Craggs. Tommy Craggs. Yeah, and he certainly had the impression that you were quite reluctant about getting into boxing. And maybe now that it's explained to a certain extent by the fact that your father was really into it. Did he push you in? He did. Yeah, he did. My brother and I, I have a uh, brother, John, who's a year younger than me, lives in Enfield still. He was a better boxer than me, you know, and uh, he actually won the Golden Gloves in Chicago in 83, I think it was, or 82. Mm. Never boxed pro, won a bunch of Irish titles, and he was better than me, yeah. My dad uh, pushed me into fighting, you know, and he knows that, you know. <laughs> if you listen to their dad, thanks a lot. <laughs> it's not news to him. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's not. You had a promising amateur career, Golden Gloves winner in the mid-80s in New what York. Ha- what happened there was uh, I'd won a few Irish titles, you know. I won the juniors and uh, came over here and was not going to fight anymore. You know, I hate, didn't really like fighting I went in the gloves in 83, lost in the quarterfinals to the eventual winner, went to them in 84, and then after 84, I just quit. I was 21, and I was drinking, like, too much, you know, and uh, driving horse and carriages around the park in New York, making a fortune. Really? That was your job at the My time? My job, horse and carriages. I'd be marching down uh, uh, Fifth Avenue like Ben-Hur on the horse and carriages. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I'm drinking all the time. I thought my life is going nowhere. I hadn't been to college, you know. Uh, so I swore off drinking for a while. Uh, enrolled in St. John's University in New York. Uh, saved a bunch of money. Bought a fire engine red Camaro like James Gardner from the Rockwood Files. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on January 4th, I says, eh, I'll give the Golden Gloves one more shot. And I went in the Golden Gloves. And the first fight was February 1st. So I had like three weeks training for the first fight. But it goes on for a month and a half. And I ended up knocking everybody out. I had never won a decision in the Golden Gloves before that. I'd always lost to like some guy that was a little more popular club, you yeah. know. So I would knock them all out. So I, I wanted that heavyweight because I couldn't make light heavy. I was only weighing 190. Uh, heavyweight is like 200 plus, or 200 pounds. And really, Bowen was light heavy. 
So if I had made light heavy, it'd be rough fighting Riddick Bowe, you know. Right. We sparred, we sparred, you know, Riddick's an old friend of mine. And uh, so I won that. And then I was in St. John's and cele- I celebrated for like a year, you know, after six months we did the Gold Clubs. And then in September, August, I realized I have no money to play for my second semester at St. John's. Uh, they offered me 10 grand to turn pro. That's a lot of money back then in 1985. So I said, yeah, I'll turn pro. So I turned pro to pay for college <laughs> and uh, had my first fight in December of 85. And by December of 89, I had beaten a few heavyweights. I was really a cruiserweight. I was ranked three as a cruiserweight in the world, professional, and nine as a heavyweight. And what happened in the spring of 1990 was the biggest shock in boxing history. Tyson gets knocked out by Buster Douglas in Japan. And they looked through the rankings. because Tyson is supposed to fight Holyfield, the biggest fighter of the century, you know. And... um, Holyfield was number one in the world. So uh, they asked me to fight him. I was like, I'm a cruiserweight, you know. So then they came back a week later and said, if, but if you beat him, we make $25 million in your next fight. So I could, gave me an offer <laughs> I couldn't refuse. <laughs> and I was, I was fighting Holyfield, yeah. That's amazing. And how yeah. are you trumped up? How are you marketed at that stage? Because Holyfield was a massive name, obviously. Well, this, this will make, make sense, yeah. Uh, at the uh, press conference, uh, my manager read Dylan, Dylan Thomas and I read Yates. So, <laughs> oh, so you're the intellectual because you're going to yes, college. Yes, Brilliant. yes, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, amazing. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. The, I re- in that piece I referenced, you said that the fight itself against Holyfield was a terrifying experience. Would you Shocking. hold to that now? Yeah. Shocking. Oh, it was. I was actually, I actually, uh, I choked in the first round. I was off balance. Like there's two knockdowns in the first round. They're not really knockdowns. I was off balance and hit me on top of the head. I'm, I'm down on one knee. You know. You're not. You're not just saying that like boxers would always God, say. I'm they not, I'm not. No, and they always say this. You know, yeah. I was robbed. No, <laughs> Um, but um, got my composure by the end of the first round. Second round did, did okay. Third round did great. You know, I have I have a picture. I sent it to Kieran, Kieran yesterday. Yeah, uh, in the yeah of uh, Hollyfield being fairly well rocked by a right hand, was it? Yeah, yeah as my friend Kevin Tui says, knocking the lunch out of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the end of the fight, but when you call it terrifying and shocking, did you feel you weren't actually at that level, that you weren't ready for a guy Not, like Evander Holyfield? I, I actually know now I was, that I was. Uh, I just was so uh, nervous and when I was fearful. Uh, by the time I settled down, uh, I, I kind of realized I'm, I'm as good as this guy, you know? I did okay in the second round, like I said, and did very good in the third round. Uh, I, I go after Holyfield. We both, ex- we're both ex- in exchange in the fourth round. Both threw left hooks. He got me right before I got him. I fell, fell back on the ground. And uh, I'm laying there thinking, if I stay here, it'll all be over. You know, <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what threw my head. Yeah. I'm going to stay here, you know. And I, was like, nah, I can't. So I get up. I was up at like seven or eight, and they, they stopped the fights. It was all over. And uh, the next day, I'm back in, I'm in Staten Island at my friend Fred Skip Pasapia's at his dad's house. You know, go to his dad's house. He says, you're in Sports Illustrated. I says, what? So I got maybe a couple of days later, you know. So he shows me a picture in Sports Illustrated of, of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm laying horizontally and at Holyfield is, is standing straight up. But if you turn the picture around, then I'm standing <laughs> up and he's laying down. So. <laughs> it's an amazing... Uh, Amazingly high-profile night to be involved in. This was yeah. at the Trump Plaza, Atlantic City. How did you handle the whole bright lights? Uh, I loved it. Elements, I you? loved it. I wasn't actually that aware of it. I, uh, I was in uh, basically weighing in training camp up in the Catskills, so I didn't even know it was as big a deal as it was until we're talking about twenty-five years later. You know, and and uh, didn't realize it was such a big deal. Uh, trained really hard. Um, 
But I didn't really have find out until afterwards. I didn't have really have a very good trainer. He was a great guy, an old guy, like like, like Rocky's guy, you know, Mickey from you know uh, from the from the movies. Great guy, uh, great motivator, great friend. Uh, but I didn't find out until a year later when I got a great trainer called Joe Ferriello who trained Mark Breland, uh, Junior Jones, all these champions. That I didn't know how to fight. You know, really? I'm basically trying to fight the number one fighter in the world. You know how to fight. You know, <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. You know, and. Uh, like an Irish, another Irish, ridiculous Irish story for me. <laughs> How was Hollyfield after the fight? Was he respectful towards you? Very respectful. Good guy. Great guy. I've actually met him a few times uh, since and uh, great guy. Uh, I saw him actually, <clears throat> I have a business at the Moscone Convention Center. I have a shoeshine business now going up in the world, you know, and uh, he was over there at, at the uh, at the auto dealer show. So I went by the booth and, and I, I didn't know if he'd remember me because I don't remember all the guys I fought. And he says, Seamus, big hug. <sighs> I told him he was the greatest fighter that ever lived because he beat me. <laughs> and uh, and then we took a picture. I showed him the picture of me knocking the lunch out of him, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Of course you're going to show that one. And you know yeah. what he says then? He says, he says, I got your left hook after that. I says, prove it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, big hug. Uh, but my uh, nine minutes and 44 seconds of fame. <laughs> so, uh, I guess I was a minute rest also. But uh, it was, at the time, it was overwhelming. The you've mentioned a couple of times that you had that you were drinking too much. Yeah, you had obviously an issue with alcohol yeah, in those yeah, years. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kind of guessing at this, but I'd imagine having a big night like that against Hollyfield and losing that yeah. wouldn't have helped that situation. You might have gone off the rails a little bit. Um, not right away. I actually, um, I you know, I I was I would always stop drinking a month before a fight. To me, drinking wasn't a bad thing, you know. It was nothing bad with it, you know. It just I had, it made me feel good, you know. And, and, and uh, But I would drink to excess, you know. Now, I'm, and I know now I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm actually a recovered alcoholic. I haven't drank in nine, over 19 years. Brilliant. Yeah, and um, which, is a, which is a really sensitive uh, state of being to be in. Like, uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I, everything affects me, like, way, seemingly way more than other people, you know. Uh, so it makes us overreactive, and uh, uh, not that it's tougher. Everyone has life. Life, life is tough for everybody. You know, life is hard. Like uh, M. Scott Peck says, the first line in his book: "Life is hard," <laughs> and he's right. But how did you get a handle on that? At some yeah. point, maybe I don't know how long after you fought Hollyfield, but at some point in your life, well, you mentioned it was nineteen years ago. You obviously decided, well, it's not just a few drinks. Uh, it's a, it's an actual, it's an addiction I've got here, and I've got to try to kick it. Totally, totally. Drinking is just a symptom of a much deeper underlying, um, I don't like saying disease, but a disease with life. You know, make two words of it, disease with life. And uh, we have basically, uh, most alcoholics have a condition called anhedonia, which means that what makes normal people, regular people happy and contented in life doesn't do it for me. You know, I need more, you know. And what alcohol did for me was anesthetize every fear I had. I was the king of the world. And that's... So when you've experienced that, everything else is a little bit of a letdown after that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't care you win, win, win a world title, it's still a letdown. You're not king of the world, you know, because alcohol uh, made me feel that way. So, so now I know uh, chemically, um, biologically, alcohol anesthetized my fears. So the only problem I have is that I have fear. And not that I'm afraid. So uh, when I heard this first, it didn't make any sense to me. So... Fear really is is worry, concern, dread, impending doom. What's going to happen? What what you're thinking about me now? What the, what are the people listening to this radio show thinking about me right now? You know, as if I, you know, so those things that my brain makes up about about the world, which is, which is a sign of sensitivity, which is really kind of a sign of intelligence. So, I can't live like that. That's like having 
uh, being distressed your whole life. I need to be. I need to feel ease and comfort. Was there a, a particular moment where you came to that realization? Am I be, am I being a little bit I don't know corny or something, or is it like from the movies where there's just one rock bottom moment where you realize you have to turn things around? Uh, no, it's it doesn't it work a gradual like thing. that. It right, about yeah. five years. Start tried to stop drinking uh, in like ninety in the early nineties, and I stopped in ninety six. Yeah, you know. So I tried all these. I tried therapy and tried all these medication and all these things to do it. And and uh, what happened was I met this group of people here in San Francisco, and they were they were doing this this, this they actually did the twelve steps every day, and they showed me how to do the twelve steps every day. And I also do a, a form of meditation called transcendental meditation, which I've done twice a day for seven nine, for nineteen years, right. and uh, I'm actually fifty two, and I try out for parts in movies like thirty five. Because I look younger, you know. Probably don't look yeah, I can, we can all confirm. It's the first thing Simon said when uh, Seamus walked in here. It was like, you, you actually look the same as you did in those photos, which is what every man or woman wants to hear in their yeah, early yeah, 50s, yeah. I think. Thanks. <laughs> Buttering you I'll up you before later. the interview. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's yeah. great that you've got such a handle on it and, have, have, uh, as you say, haven't had a drink in 19, almost 20 years there. That's yeah. brilliant stuff. You've touched on the acting there. Yeah. This is one of the strands to your life after boxing. You yeah. mentioned your shoeshine business. I'm intrigued as to how somebody gets into that, how an ex-boxer gets into a shoeshine business and you're still involved in it to this day. I'm still involved in it to this day. A friend of mine, Kevin, Kevin Tui, was uh, managing a stand downtown. He was asked to manage a stand and he says, uh, hey, I'm managing this business downtown. You want to come work? I said, yeah, sure. I was, I was newly sober and, and uh, looking for work. And he's, I said, what do, you, what do you do? He says, it's a shoeshine business. I says, what would I do there? He says, you'd shine shoes. I said, Jesus. So, like you say that. Uh, so I started shining shoes. I loved it. And then I started my own business. And now we have a worldwide business called theshoeshine.com. Theshoeshine.com. There's your plug. <laughs> and uh, we do shows in London, Ireland, uh, Vegas, uh, all over the place. Did you have any inkling in the back of your head at that stage or any feeling that, oh, I don't know, I still see myself as... Uh, a boxing contender uh, and maybe shining somebody's shoes is beneath me. Did you have that mental process to I've get never, over before becoming successful at it? You said you loved it straight away. Right away. I, I never had that. I don't know why. Some people think, uh, I told my dad, whenever I mentioned, <laughs> I goes, don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but now he, now he, now he, uh, he doesn't mind it. But uh, it never hit me. I don't know why. I mean, like, uh, um, you know, I always like to quote that, <clears throat> didn't Jesus get down on his hands and knees and uh, wash the feet of his apostles? apostles? <laughs> Not that I'm Jesus. <laughs> well, listen, we'll leave it on that note. Yeah. Seamus, I'm yeah. glad you're having a, a great life over here. Yeah. And it's been yeah. brilliant catching up with you. Thanks so much. I'm sure all our listeners appreciate you talking as Lovely, well. Thank great. You. Thanks so much. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. On sight. That's where it goes from. On sight. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do I give a fuck? Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. A really uh, interesting character there. It's nice to nice to hear a boxer talk like that so openly about the fear involved mm. in your big fight. It's one of those sports where 
yeah, the normal nerves that you would have in any occasion like that, if, especially if you were a little bit in above your head, although Seamus didn't feel, just felt maybe he didn't fight the right fight on the day, but there's no doubt that Holyfield was a superior class of boxer. Yeah, you have that nerve, that sense of nerves, combined with the fact that this guy's going to be beating me around the ring here. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that uh, it's not a thing that boxers or jockeys or whoever, it's not a thing that they, that they lie about to everyone but themselves. The lie continues in their own heads when it comes to talking about the fear of what they actually do, that the... You can't go around convincing yourself if if you're telling you telling people that you're that you're not afraid doesn't do do the job of convincing yourself. So you actually have to sit down and say, right, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid, uh, and try and convince yourself that way. And I think that you know if you're knocked down by Evander Holyfield and you just lie on the ground and you take a second to say, if I just stay here, it's all over. I think that's a I think that's a pretty amazing line to come out with, you know, that you you've lost nothing. It's the most human just, thought in the world. Yeah, nobody's yeah, expecting exactly. to win or anything like that. What would you do, Ken, if you were in Seamus McDonough's shoes round four, nineteen ninety? Well, I'll take you back to Hawk Hill, uh, that we were talking <laughs> about on. Uh, the man knows no fear. Um I would call it nearly reckless. I would say that consciousness is not necessary. I mean it's uh it's only one of the ways in which we can experience the world to be conscious, to be actively perceiving it, and uh, you know, if if at times if there's if there's a short gap in that, then does it, does that really matter? Is that something you're really going to lose sleep over in in later years if you if the purse is big enough? So you battle on. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd get out there and. Uh, Pick up that purse. Exciting times here in San Francisco. The Giants against the Dodgers starts on Tuesday night. As we mentioned, Brian will be there for the Thursday afternoon game. It is with the rest bit, of the bums. It is us actually, and the rest of the bums there uh, on Thursday afternoon. Yeah, it is actually just brilliant that uh, the sport happens to be amazing. And yeah, the, the Warriors stuff is here. amazing. It's game one of the Western Conference Finals is on Tuesday night. Steph Curry has lived up to the billing. We're learning about Buster Posey and the Giants and uh, and all these other great characters of. West Coast American yeah, sport. So we landed in on on Friday, yeah, and uh, we uh, got our bearings, uh, got to our house, all the rest of that, and we just got uh, out in time to see the end of the third quarter when Steph Curry threw that absolute bomb, uh, which is, is still one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, and it actually it planked you right into the middle of it. Right, this is actually happening. People do care a lot about it, and this, they're playing the Houston Rockets game. in the finals, and they've beaten the Houston Rockets by a landslide every time they've played in this season. So confidence aside, it's funny to see a team. This is a team who've never been here or haven't been here for since nineteen seventy six or whatever. And now that they're here, everybody's riding that. Well, we've we've got this one sewn up. Yeah, uh, we just have to get into the and win this four 0 and then get into the NBA they finals. So hopefully they're not run. setting. They don't have the uh, traditional Irish thing of being afraid of setting ourselves up for a fall. No, they are setting themselves up for the biggest fall in the world. Let's just hope they can ride this wave for another couple of days. All right, hope you've enjoyed the first Irish Time Second Captain's podcast from San Francisco. We're here with thanks to Aer Lingus and we have a live show. Just to remind you on Wednesday night, if you are in the area, to have a look at secondcaptains.com or drop us an email, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com if you want to come along. All right, what are we up to now, Murph? We're pretty much wrapped up oh, here. Uh, oh, Monday, the itinerary says, I believe cable car, uh, Dan Powell. Have a listen to the football podcast. We'll have that for you in a, a little while and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran, and thank you, Owen. And thanks for listening. I am a real American. Come on, we'll go to a, your favorite, a baseball game. I'd be more than happy to have you boys come on over. American. I'll get you guys garlic fries and anchor steam beer. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. Oh, yeah. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.